Good evening. Welcome. Good to have you here tonight. Appreciate you making it out and appreciate I had last week off, but uh, appreciate Radley filling in for me and good to be back. We're uh, continuing on in basics. Remember, this is the basics class that uh, Dan Cross started once upon a time, and uh, we're keeping Pastor Dan in our prayers uh, today and next week. will be the final of his two uh, candidating Sundays in uh, Corpus Christi. So I don't know what their uh, timetable is or when they plan on voting or anything of that nature, but um, anyway, keep Pastor Dan in your prayers and keep the uh, pulpit committee at, at uh, Corpus Christi Bible Church in your prayers. So uh, a few weeks ago, I took over this six, uh, six o'clock hour and I've been delighted to work our way through the basic doctrinal studies notebook. We've been going through uh, the essence of God in uh, recent classes. Also, we had a baptism class a couple weeks ago, getting ready for uh, Saturday uh, on the 20, what day is that? The last Saturday of the month when we're having the baptism service, 27th. All right. That's right, because this is the 14th, 21st, 28th. All right, so Saturday the 27th, we have a baptism service coming up, and uh, looking forward to that. All right, well, we're going to be in anthropology tonight. Before we get started, let's open a word of prayer and ask the Father to set aside distractions and to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you tonight, thankful for your truth rejoicing in your faithfulness and father calling upon your faithfulness once again this evening to open the eyes of our understanding to lead us to teach us all things we thank you for the faithfulness of god the holy spirit who uh, does lead us in all things even the deep things of god so father make these truths very clear to each one of us uh, open our the eyes of our understanding to understand these uh, these powerful truths these necessary truths and i thank you father in jesus christ's name amen I tell you, if Satan is busy trying to confuse the issue, uh, particularly with his lies related to the nature of God, I think he's probably just as busy uh, spreading his lies about the nature of man and uh, spreads a lot of lies related to uh, humanity and what we are, uh, what we are by God's design, what we are in the fall. And uh, so many lies out there that I think uh, convince people that they don't need to be saved in the first place because they're basically good people anyway. And uh, when Satan convinces a person that he's a good person and doesn't need a savior, then uh, he's won half the battle right there, has he not? And so uh, we can appreciate, uh, I think, accurate teaching from the Word of God. In particular, because uh, I've heard it, I don't know how many times in recent weeks, you know, we're all born with a clean slate. We're born just, you know, innocent and, and, and so forth. And then it's, it's our environment or it's bad things or it's different things that ruin us. No, we're not born a clean slate. We're born a very wicked slate. And uh, as we've been studying recently in Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the nature of uh, fallen humanity and our depravity is, uh, is important. So uh, this portion of uh, basic doctrinal studies then centers on uh, anthropology. And I'm using my outline rather than Dan's. Dan was hoping to create his own basics notebook. But uh, our, my basics notebook anyway starts with uh, bibliology and then theology, that is theology proper, and then anthropology the doctrine of man. And once we understand what man's all about, what man's need is, then we're able to uh, to understand uh, the offer of salvation. So the nature of sin and salvation then follows in soteriology. But for tonight, we're going to tackle anthropology. Study of his essence, lost estate, and eternal purpose. And that's what we want to make sure we're clear on. Um, I'll skip through some of this. Uh, has there ever been a more misunderstood creature? False religions promote false gods, to be sure, but they also promote a false view of man. It is this aspect of their lies that can be just as deceptive and evil. The Word of God portrays an accurate view of mankind that must be understood by the new believer. And I think because it's so misunderstood, in particular, when unbelievers visit a church or they meet church people, they've got these assumptions of what they think religion's about or what they think church people are about and so forth. And a lady that I met a couple weeks ago was all convinced about trying to become a better person. Day by day by day, she says she's trying to be a better person than she was the day before. And I thought, wow, how exhausting. You must just be tired. You know, it doesn't take long and you realize this constant effort for self-improvement uh, based on human effort is going, to, uh, going to, leave, fall, is going to fall short in this respect. So the new believer has a frame of reference to understand that he once was lost but now is found, which was blind but now he sees but 
He doesn't totally understand exactly how lost he was, how blind he was, how the grace of God reached him on the infinite basis that it did. And so this study will hopefully be helpful in that regard. Um, I hold to a trichotomy, the tripart nature of redeemed man. I realize that's a debate in certain circles that folks will discuss that. But as I like to start with uh, keeping it simple, pointing to a verse like 1 Thessalonians 5.23, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And so this is, I I adapt this, this is my definition of what an entire human is. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in my mind, that's simple enough, straightforward. We can start with that. Uh, We will need to discuss certain aspects of soul and spirit and why there are verses that seem to use those terms interchangeably and other verses that don't allow uh, for those terms to be used interchangeably. Uh, But nevertheless, as far as a tripart nature is concerned, there's nothing wrong with this this format. And so when we draw it out, I prefer to, and this is a good chance to use my pen, when I draw out humanity... um, in terms of the the inner man and the outer man, I like that to draw that inner man with kind of a, a soul side and a spirit side. Of course, this is the inner man. The outer man is renewed, is perishing, but the inner man is renewed day by day. We've got a, a very physical, visible thing that can be seen. That's our body. But then we have the invisible, immaterial part of man, that inner man. All right. And so there are passages that will describe us in two natures: the outer and the inner. And that's fine. We're going to keep it simple enough. That's fine. But that inner man, likewise, has to be delineated between the soul and the spirit. There is a dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And I think that the core of that dividing asunder of the soul and spirit is the cardia, that is the heart. All right? And so when you read in in, uh, Hebrews 4, that is the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even as far as the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, that's where it plunges to. The Word of God that pierces directly to the heart. And so as I diagram this, and this is just my visualization, it's a, it's a device that helps us to comprehend. You won't find a passage of Scripture that will, that will describe it quite in these terms. But the soul and spirit has a dividing asunder. And I think that, that's the core of who we are. That's the, 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 the innermost core of who we are, what Scripture calls the innermost being or the, the cardia or the heart. And obviously the body is the obvious one that's visible and everybody can see it. And it's the one that is infested by sin and, and uh, fallen and all the rest. All right. And so um, this aspect then I think then become, is going to become important for us. Uh, the, the bipart nature of unredeemed man, obviously the unbeliever, um, he has a body, he has a soul, but his human spirit is dead. That's not it's the human spirit that's made alive at the point of salvation. And so different pastors will model this in different ways. Some teach that you don't have any human spirit at all, that you're just body and soul, and that the human spirit is a divine act of creation that that comes about at the moment of our salvation. I think it's preferable to view us as body, soul, and dead human spirit. It does exist, but it's a dead spirit until it is made alive. And the expression to make alive is uh, what happens there in the new birth. So I think that's a, a more accurate model. Body, soul, and spirit. In the unbeliever's case, this is dead, but it becomes alive at the moment that you accept Christ for eternal life. Um, Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5, I think makes this clear. You were dead. You used to be dead. Uh, that's not talking about your body. That's not talking about your soul. I was talking about your spiritual, uh, your human spirit, that you were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And we're going to note that the, the spirit is what, is what resonates, it's what um, communicates. If it's living, it can communicate with the Holy Spirit. If it's dead, it can only communicate with the dead spirits, the fallen angels, the demons, the dead spirits of this cosmos. And so walking dead in your trespasses and sins is according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. All right? And um, I don't think it's in the notes, but there's, uh, there's references to unbelievers talking about their spirits being troubled. Nebuchadnezzar spoke of his spirit being troubled. Pharaoh spoke of his spirit being troubled. In both cases, they were unbelievers when they made that statement. Uh, I believe Nebuchadnezzar got saved shortly after that, but 
uh, the point that he was saying, my spirit is troubled, he was as an unbeliever making that statement with respect to his ruch, his spirit. Um, basics will also cover the current condition of our mortal bodies as dead and dying, even while the human spirit has been made alive. And Romans 8 is another good passage to pay attention to in verses 10 and 11. A contrast here with respect to our physical bodies. They're dead and dying. Uh, the body we have now, I realize some of you are very impressed with your bodies, and then I don't blame you, but, uh, you know, as physically fit as you are, as healthy as you are, as attractive as you are, and all the rest, uh, our physical bodies uh, are dead and dying, all right? And if you don't feed it, water it, rest it, it is, it is a perishable thing. And, and by design, uh, by design, Adam and Eve were created mortal. They had to eat. They were given trees to eat from. And uh, even without sin in the world, the, the, the body of Adam and Eve, their bodies were mortal. And I think it's important that we identify that. In fact, if we have time tonight, I wouldn't mind exploring that a little bit more because I think uh, Tony Tran and some other folks we've been corresponding with on Facebook are, are right on target when they're uh, discussing the, the wages of sin is spiritual death and has no bearing on physical death at all. All right? And uh, some of those issues, I think... Um, get more complicated than they need to be, I think we ought to keep them as simple as we possibly can. So, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And this is a description of reality for every believer in the church age. The body is dead because of sin. We have fallen bodies, and that didn't change when you received eternal life. You know, you still have the same body that you had, you still have the same sin nature that you had. Getting saved doesn't just magically make all your sins go away or cause you to, to develop a different set of sin patterns uh, that, uh, that you had when you were an unbeliever. All right, The body is dead and dying because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And that righteousness is imputed to our account. That spirit is made alive. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Now notice, this is not talking about resurrection body. This is not talking about uh, what happens after we leave earth and get to heaven. This is talking about the divine empowerment that happens here and now under the filling of the Holy Spirit. This is what happens now when God empowers us to present our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. How we can present this dead thing for His service, for His glory, even though it still has the body of death, as Paul says, who will set me free from this body of death. Well, the, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, what have we been studying for weeks now in, in Galatians chapter 5, right? Walk by means of the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. All right, and so we have the contrast there. The, tri- the tripart nature of redeemed man. So when we go back to Genesis 2-7, I do think it's useful to describe the breath of lives. And in the Hebrew, it's the breath of lives, and lives is plural. The breath of lives. And um, I probably overstress it, but Hebrew has a singular, a dual, and a plural. And the breath of lives being plural, um, I, I do overstate the case. It's not necessarily imply three or more. The plural does imply two or more related to that. But nevertheless, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of lives, plural, and man became a living being. There was more than one life that was breathed in, and I believe there were three. I believe that he was, when God breathed life into that dust body, that he imparted physical life, soul life, and spiritual life to to Adam. And man became a living nephesh, a living soul, all right? Rendered there as a living uh, being, but a living soul when you read it in the Hebrew. And so uh, I think that's the best thing for us to consider is the fact that we... um, uh, we are souls, and we have bodies. That's a big difference. Okay, we're not. Uh, we are not our bodies that have souls. We are souls that have bodies, and that's a much more accurate way to state that. And uh, so we have the uh, the initiation of it here. Adam's body was formed from the dust of the ground, and God breathed in him the breath of lives, the nishmath chayim, and Adam became a living soul. That is a nefesh chayah a living soul. And so that's the definition of what humanity is. And I think this is vital. This is part of what we go into when we describe how everything that God designed to be procreative, everything that God designed to to procreate after its kind, 
which is why dogs have puppies and cats have kittens and apple trees have apples and 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 never once does an apple tree just on a whim decide to produce a banana you know just because are are they bored with apples someday and just say i'm tired of these apples and i'm just going to make a banana or a, a, a dog ever decide he was tired of having puppies all the time and just have a litter of kittens or anything of the sort, all right? So humans beget humans, and that's the nature of procreation, and, and um, everything that's, that's of a procreative type, angels are not procreative, but, but humans are. And so we procreate and we replicate after our kind. And this then, I think, becomes significant when we discuss the different views on the origin of the soul. I, I hold to the traducian view of the origin of the soul, that living souls beget living souls, all right? And so that's the nature of it there. And so uh, I, I view that the procreation process is the uniting of bodies, of course, but it's also the uniting of souls, souls that are knit together, and the bodies and souls that are knit together then procreate the tripart nature of fallen man, all right, and uh, aspects of it there. Any questions on that? I know that was kind of quick, but we, t- we discussed traducianism last I think it was last summer when we were in Geisler's Systematic Theology and discussing the origin of the soul. And, and uh, <coughs> I know there are pastors that teach it differently, that teach the body only procreates the body and that the soul is then uh, the breath of life when the baby exits the womb and so forth at, at childbirth. But I don't teach that. And I've never taught that related to uh, <coughs> the origin of the soul. That would make the soul younger than the body. It would make the, the person, the soul, uh, different than the body. And that's not what I see in, in Genesis 2. All right. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the New Testament provides the clearest testimony to the tripart nature. And that 1 Thessalonians passage is clear. Also Hebrews 4 is clear that there is sometimes uh, or there is often a, a need to delineate the difference between soul and spirit. Now a lot of times it's just interchangeable. And a lot of times when, when the Bible talks about the soul, it's talking about the soul and the spirit and just the inner man, the invisible part of man, and it's not overly technical. Uh, so, you know, you can have a reference to a soul and, and you're talking about the, the, the person. Even, even in, in modern English, we have that, you know, a ship goes down and 300 souls were lost, for example. You know, we, did, we use the similar idiom today that a soul is a person. So when the, uh, the visible is contrasted with the invisible, there's no need to be uh, detailed or particular on the soul and spirit distinction. So you could talk about inner man, outer man. You could talk about uh, some of these different passages like Romans 7, 22 and 23. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body. <laughs> Guess what? I'm a fallen creature. And every, every molecule of my DNA is infested with Adam's sin, <coughs> making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death. Second Corinthians 4.16, therefore we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying and our inner man is being renewed day by day. And that's a good thing, because uh, the, the longer we exist in these bodies, I think the worse our bodies get too, by the way, not just physically worse and sickness and disease and whatnot, but our sin nature gets stronger. Our sin nature learns to get craftier and craftier in the, the uh, things that it's involved with. Ephesians 3.16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. And so this is a part of what we do as we feed on the word of God, as we're renewed in the spirit of our mind. We come to church, we learn, we grow, we, we feast, we get stronger and stronger as we exercise our faith. It's, uh, I think it's a real parallel to the strengthening of our bodies through physical exercise. It comes about with the strengthening of the inner man through the uh, intake of the Word of God and the application of the Word of God in our spiritual walk. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. We also have a general term, heart. And I think sometimes heart can be very particular. Sometimes heart can precisely reference that inner core, that inner man. Sometimes heart has to be distinguished between uh, the difference between soul and spirit and heart. There's also mind, heart, mind, soul, and strength. There's, there's other terms, right? 
Uh, mind is technically a facet of soul, as is emotions. Okay. Usually when I diagram the soul, it includes mentality, emotions, self-consciousness, conscience, and volition. So these are the facets of soul. But there's heart. But sometimes heart is used just generally. Sometimes heart is used uh, as basically a synonym for the invisible man, for the inner man, as, as a man purpose in his heart. All right. Matthew 15, 18 and 19, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7. Now, the unbeliever, the unbeliever does not have a living human spirit. So he is, strictly speaking, soulish. And I think that's uh, the impact when you, when you go into a detailed study on 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The soulish man, the natural man. He is not spiritual because all he has is soul. His whole interface in, uh, in the, the world around him is a soulish interface. And so we have that described as well. Only believers have living human spirits. The unbeliever is spiritually dead. We already saw Ephesians 2. There's also Colossians 2.13 that speaks to this. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Salvation is described as a passing from death into life. Okay? Adam and Eve were the only humans that were ever spiritually alive that then passed into a spiritually dead state. They were the only humans created spiritually alive that then fell into sin. The rest of us, descended from Adam and Eve, were born spiritually dead, physically alive and spiritually dead. The total depravity of mankind is clear. But salvation is described as passing from death into life in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's a present possession. You have that right here, right now. You're not waiting to get, get that when you, you know, get to heaven. It's not part of your welcome package when you get to heaven. You have it right here, right now. You have eternal life. And you do not come into judgment, but has, but has completed action, passed out of death into life. And that's that sphere of positional truth. That's the glory that we have to be saved. This life is an eternal life. It is one free from condemnation judgment. Romans 8, 1. There is now, therefore... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a blessing. So, um, that's, again, positional truth, and we're very happy for that. So the part of Adam which died on that day, let's go back again, look at Genesis 2.17. Here's the promise. And God is precise. God's not, uh, he, you know, he didn't miss the mark by 930 years. He said, on the day you eat of it, dying you will die. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so, uh, I can back up even a little bit more. Whoops. All right. I'm not used to this yet. So the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. And what does that tell you right there? They needed to eat. What if they don't eat? Okay. What if they don't eat? Uh, food is required. They, they were designed to be food-eating creatures. They were designed to, to consume food. And, and this, you know, it's, it's not trying to be, to be goofy with it or anything, but, but I think because we do tend to discuss things with uh, our friends on the, the young earth creation side of things, uh, a lot of the creation science folks, they really miss the mark on this. I think they abuse Romans 5. And they, uh, they insist that there was no kind of death of any kind prior to Adam's sin. And they camp on Romans 5 that through one man death, a, a sin entered the world and death through sin. <coughs> and they fail to identify that the only death that's mentioned there in Romans 5 is the spiritual death. And the only life that's provided there in Romans 5 is the spiritual life through faith in Jesus Christ. In any event... Um, when we talk about death before Adam's sin, there was all kinds of death before Adam's sin. And that bothers some people. They, they don't like the fossil record that shows animal death. I'm okay with the fossil record that shows animal death. I'm okay with plant death. I'm okay with botanical death. Uh, he said you could eat from a tree. You pluck a banana off a tree, what'd you just do? You just killed that banana. You got banana death. Okay. And so there's, there's all kinds of death 
The, the death that God promised, though, is a consequence of disobedience, is spiritual death. That is the break of that, of that fellowship, that link between the living human spirit of Adam and Eve and, and God himself. And so this becomes important. And from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And that happened that very moment. Their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked. They hid from the presence of God. And they were spiritually dead. Adam doesn't physically die for 930 years. Physical death is not a consequence of spiritual death. (coughs) Physical death is not a consequence of the fall. Physical death is not a consequence of sin. Physical death is a consequence of losing access to the tree of life. (laughs) All right? They got kicked out of the garden. An angel was posted with a flaming sword. And humanity never again had access to that tree of life until it gets replanted in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to read in Revelation 21 and 22 that the, that the new heavens and new earth has the tree of life replanted. And it's for the, hundred, it's for the thousand generations of the fullness of time. That gets into some other things. All right. So the part of Adam which died on that day that he partook of the forbidden fruit, that was his spirit, Genesis 2.17. The wages of sin is spiritual death, Romans 6.23. The wages of sin, singular, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life, Zoe. It's the only life that's ever called eternal, all right? Bios life is never called eternal, but Zoe life is called eternal. We receive bios, our biology comes from uh, you know, our physical birth, but our zoe comes from faith in Christ. The gift of God is zoe, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the divine provision for the universal problem of spiritual death. And so when you start to, you ever done a study on the barrier and you break down the different uh, stones that divide us from God, that includes spiritual death, that includes physical death, that includes a lot of things sin and expiation, all the provision that removes those stones from the barrier. Well, what removes the, the provision of, or the, the stone of spiritual death? It's spiritual life. That's the, that's the provision that removes the, the barrier there, that stone in the barrier. Likewise, obviously, physical death is, not, is, is a separate aspect. All right. So therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sin. This is God's grace that assigned the guilt, not just to Adam personally, but to Adam corporately, to Adam and his seed, because we were all in Adam when Adam sinned. So the, the wages of sin is, singular, is death. We all sinned when Adam sinned. We all sinned. That's what it says right there, because all sinned. You and I sinned on that day when Adam sinned. So... Uh, there you have it. Now, again, that's the verse that they camp on. That's the verse that they deny there could have been any plant death, any animal death, any, anything. They say they, they really confuse the issue with death and they make all kinds of death all equivalent and all the same. And I think that's a problem because when you get to the corollary then, if, if, if all death is the same death, well then that must mean all life is the same life and no one could have lived until, until Jesus died on the cross. <laughs> right? And that obviously is not the case. The death of Christ on the cross is not necessary for you to receive physical life. All right. And so this, I think, is the the best way to be fair to the text of Romans chapter 5. If you want more on that, we have a Romans series sitting there on the website, and all the material there in chapter 5 will address these issues. So the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is the divine provision for the universal problem of spiritual death. And that's, that's just the genius of God. That locks up all of humanity into a single dead estate. And so there can be a single grace provision for that single dead estate. There's no need for two paths or three paths or a billion paths to, to truth or righteousness or life or heaven or anything else. There is one and only one. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. It is the one and only one reconciliation between God and man. Believer, uh, believers continue to function in a dead and dying body. That's very clear. Romans 8, we looked at that already, verses 10 through 11. 
The human spirit is now alive through the righteousness and presence of Jesus Christ, but the mortal body remains in need of a future promised salvation. So when we talk about the salvation yet to be revealed or the salvation yet to be realized, that is the final uh, thing that that does get saved is the removal of sin from these bodies and the, the transformation of these bodies into conformity with the body of His glory. And so you've got passages that speak of a future salvation in terms of the last piece of the puzzle, that is the, the nature of the fallen body. We have, to wear, we have to bear the image of the earthly, and then we can bear the image of the heavenly. So Romans 8.23, We ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. We get saved, we receive the Holy Spirit, He indwells each one of us, but that is simply the earnest money. That is the deposit. That is just simply the, the little down payment on the glory yet to be revealed. And uh, the body itself still groans. And the older we get, the more we groan. <laughs> You've noticed that. I've noticed that. Some of our uh, prayer meetings and some of our other sessions, and some, uh, some of, myself included, we, uh, we have uh, sound effects when we stand up. Or when we sit down, you know, sometimes we sit down with a, you know, and we, we have like a soundtrack everywhere we go. When we stand up, it's with a grunt. Or we sit down, it's the, it's the body that groans, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? And that's the nature, the, the last piece of the puzzle. The part that he graciously leaves unsaved is this fallen body. All right. Graciously, he leaves it unsaved. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? Because it, in his grace, that's the, 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 that magnifies his provision. The surpassing value of the grace would be of him and not of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 15, 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And so, I, in fact, I like to quote this a lot when I preach a funeral. You know, we talk about, well, what's the nature of the body that we're putting in the ground today? And what's the nature of the body that's going to come out when the trumpet sounds? Okay? It's a physical body that goes in the ground, but it's a spiritual body that comes out. It's a mortal body that goes in the ground. It's a weak body. It is uh, a perishable body, it says in verse 42. It is uh, sown a perishable body, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a soulish body, natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. All right. So we can appreciate that. Philippians 3.21 So I'll back up to verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Now, you know, there's, I have moments that I think, well, wouldn't it have been better if we could have just been glorified physically the, the minute we get saved? You know, wouldn't that be cool? Uh, no. Only only the carnal part of me that can't comprehend the wisdom of God's plan thinks that's a cool idea because God knows better than I do. All right? And uh, no, we need, we need to magnify His grace and that gets done in these fallen bodies. Although our bodies are dead and dying, we're still instructed to present them as living sacrifices. Romans 12.1 We're still expected to glorify God in our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6.20 and we are expected to use these fallen bodies for His service in sanctification. We present the members of our bodies not as instruments of sin, but as instruments of righteousness. Fallen that they are. Full of sin that they are. Because although they're sinful, they're redeemed. <laughs> By the grace of God, they're redeemed. And, uh, and He gets to turn cursing into blessing. And He gets to empower through the Holy Spirit indwelling us uh, the use of our fallen bodies for His good pleasure, for His glory. What a delight. What an unbelievable honor. Okay, uh, one passage that was not in these notes is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, so let's take a look at that. And again, we have the issues here. 
And this gets down to the lower part of the chapter and then crosses over into chapter 3. Let me talk about what God has revealed through the Spirit. So 1 Corinthians 2.10. This is not in the basics notebook. This is just extra tonight. To us, God revealed through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God, the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. All right? Now, if you're reading a New American Standard Bible, then that word spirit there is uh, capitalized, and I prefer that we not capitalize that, that we're not referring to the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit that is a feature of the church age, but we're referring to the living human spirit. All right? That comes by being born from above, that comes from being born again, comes from being born by uh, not by the will of man, but by the will of God. And it's the nature of being spiritually alive that equips us to listen to the Holy Spirit. Which things also we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual with spiritual. All right? So in verse 13 there, this, the truth is being communicated by the Spirit of truth. And if the human being is not spiritual, they can't receive that truth. If they don't have a living human spirit, they cannot listen to God the Holy Spirit. If all they have is a soul, then they're not going to hear the things of the Spirit of God. It requires a living human spirit to receive the things of the living of of God the Holy Spirit. And that's why it says combining spiritual with spiritual. And you'll note that thoughts and words are italics. They're not in in the Greek spiritual thoughts with spiritual words those are helping terms that are thrown in there literally it's just combining spiritual with spiritual i believe it we could think of it as spiritual transmission and spiritual reception combining a spiritual transmission with our spiritual hearing our spiritual reception the best way to think of that and uh aspects there i I still use am fm radio illustrations even though people mock me and laugh at me for that but uh, they, they still exist. I have them in my car. I have an AM radio and I have an FM radio. And that technology is not completely obsolete and gone. Um, and, and so if, if, if all I have is an AM radio receiver, I'm not going to receive anything that's being transmitted on that FM band. In order to hear an FM radio transmission, I've got to have an, a, an FM radio tra- uh, receiver. See, And that's the nature of it. If, you, if we are natural only and not spiritual then the only thing we can relate to is in the realm of soul, not the realm of spirit. Okay, And in the realm of soul, obviously, mentality, emotions, conscience, self-conscience, volition, we can interact with other souls, we can interact with humans, we can interact with animals, we can interact on a soul level as unbelievers. But until we're saved, until we have a living human spirit, we cannot interact with one another on a spiritual basis, and we cannot interact with God himself receiving the truth that's communicated on a spiritual basis. I hope that's clear. So uh, spiritual with spiritual. Verse 14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. All right? So that's verse 14 right there. And that natural man, that natural man is a soulish man. It's a sukikos man. The word there is sukikos, and that refers to the suke, the soul, the natural man. If all he is is body and soul without a living human spirit, he is a sukikos, natural man, soulish man. Remember, it's sown a soulish body, it's raised a spiritual body. And so this natural man, this soulish man, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. And this is the nature of it. We become spiritual when we're saved. We receive a living human spirit in this context. All right. Does that mean we stop sinning? <laughs> Does that mean since we're saved, now we're spiritual and everything's great after that? No. Now, the issue then becomes not of losing salvation, but of operating on a carnal basis instead of a spiritual basis. And so we cross into chapter 3, and we have this contrast then that comes about. And by the way, if you've ever read Lewis Berry Chafer on He That Is Spiritual, this is what he's getting at right here in these two chapters. 
chapter 2 and chapter 3. The difference is, is the believer in chapter 3 can never lose his salvation. He never goes back to being a natural man. But he does become a carnal man when he operates according to his flesh instead of according to his living human spirit. So it says, I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. He doesn't say, by the way, you lost your spirit, and now you're, you're a natural man again. He says, I, you are still spiritual men, I just can't speak to you that way. <laughs> I just can't speak to you in spiritual terms because the sin issue now has created the, the carnality barrier to you hearing this truth. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. You are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. Isn't it interesting? The, the natural man, the unbeliever, can't even have milk. He can't take in anything. The carnal believer can still digest milk. That's a grace provision too, I think, that God even allows milk to, to sink through, even in your carnality. He'll get a little milk in there to help you uh, to help work inside of you that which is necessary for your confession. And he says, you're walking like mere men in verse 3. You don't lose your salvation, but practically you're kind of just like an unbeliever in the way you're living choices you're making, the, the actions you're taking, the sin you're pursuing. You're not an unbeliever, but you kind of like it in that sense. Uh, if I didn't know any better, I might think you were an unbeliever, just looking at what you're doing, right? And so we have the contrast there. All right, well, that gets us to the end of anthropology. Any questions on that? Comments, complaints, anything not clear? Yes, sir. Microphone? Ah, here we go. And the, and the, the point is, we, people are listening on the MP3 or they're... We don't want them listening to half a telephone conversation. In John twelve twenty five. John 12? Mm-hmm. Okay. It says, he who loves his life loses it. And the word is suke. Mm-hmm. Sukane. Um, that, is that the word for soul? Is that... A more literal translation, you love your soul. Yep, that is soul. So he who phileo, he who phileos his soul loses it, and he who hates his phileo in this world, or his uh, soul in this world, will keep it to life eternal. Well, that's a good question, isn't it? I don't remember how that was, uh, that we did include that in the Life of Christ series. In terms of a contrast to... Um, I'm sorry, I'll let you finish your question before I well, tell you I can't that, answer. I'm just curious about that verse, and, and it doesn't mention the pneuma, but we kind of understand the Zoe life to be pneumatic, right? Right, right, very much. Um, I'll go back and look at that um, be- between now and next Sunday night, because I, I re- remember we, we addressed it in the Life of Christ series. Jesus employs a lot of... Um, hyperbolic logic. He, he applies a lot of, of rhetoric whereby he uses a language of extreme. For example, he'll talk about unless you hate your mother and father, you don't really love me, for example. He'll use language of extreme in order to draw the contrast, to show the contrast for what it is. And I believe that's what's uh, happening in this case too, in the contrast between phileo love and hatred in, uh, in that. But that is soul, yes, that is soul right there. Thanks. Other questions? You think you could explain this to somebody? You could explain this to an unbeliever? Why he needs to have a living spirit? How he's a soulish person? Body and soul, but no living human spirit? Show him how the body, soul, and the spirit must be preserved complete, and it takes God to do that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. All right, well, then that gets us into soteriology. We've got about 15 minutes left for tonight. That's fine. We can move on. Doctrine of salvation. Obviously, Adam and Eve fell, okay? And so humanity as designed, humanity as initially created, uh, now has a problem. And the problem is is the fall, is, is sin. And what to do about that? Because God obviously uh, is not up there in heaven winging it or coming up with a, an emergency backup plan B. Um, he's not like Russell Wilson or some other NFL quarterback that's just scrambling because his play broke down. 
He's, uh, God knew from eternity past that when he permitted volition, when he designed angels and humans with volitional capacity, that there would be negative volition applied, that there would be a fall. There would be an angelic rebellion and a human rebellion. And that's exactly what the Bible describes. And so in order to save, in order to, to reconcile fallen man back to God, uh, this plan became necessary. And, and so it's not a plan B, it's always been a plan A. It's a plan A along with the, the intention to create volitional creatures. And uh, I think that's significant as well, that God the Father and the, and the Son agreed to the work of the cross before there was any fall that, that we think in, in, in time that required the, the cross to be necessary. God knew that the cross would be necessary. And so he put this eternal plan into motion. So soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, the study of the barrier between a whole, the holy God and fallen man, and the work of God to remove that barrier. And so uh, principles of evangelism, when you communicate the good news, uh, fall under this doctrine, as well as ambassadorship. What is our function in representing uh, the kingdom of heaven? What is our function in representing eternal life to this lost and dying world? The brand new believer knows that he is saved, but does not have any doctrinal framework to understand all that God did on his behalf in order to save him. And that's why oftentimes it's common, you've encountered this, a lot of folks have encountered that you have a very young believer who's not very old in his faith and he's, he's afraid he might lose what he just gained. Because without the teaching that reinforces how eternal, eternal life is, um, you know, a young believer can get, can get scared and can get misled and can start to feel like somehow they're going to lose what they, were, what they were just given by grace. And that's why I think it's vital that we teach assurance as quickly as we can. We teach the aspects of eternal security as, as soon as we can. So that the, the new believer can, can truly embrace that which he's been given already. And, and it's not hard, really. I mean, it's, it's the, the same principles up that, are, that are at work in evangelism. Uh, we don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Uh, we can't, uh, we can't, uh, if we can't, if it's something we can't earn for ourselves, how can we earn throwing it away? <laughs> how can we earn losing it if we can never earn receiving it, you see, beyond our capacity in any event? So he has an experience of salvation which was easy enough for him to receive, but now he needs doctrinal information to understand the glories of what he has experienced. And the neat thing is, is by the time he's able to receive this information, um, it's already eternally his, <laughs> okay? And uh, um, how much has to be taught before they can trust in Christ? I think very little, honestly. I think the, the, the need of the gift, the nature of the gift, and the one offering the gift... Um, and I know there are pastors that, that dispute this with me, um, uh, but, and, I, and friends of mine will teach that if you don't hold to eternal security, then you're not truly saved. I, I, I can't see that. There, 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 were, there were believers for centuries that were, that were not clear on eternal security in, uh, in a lot of ways, in any event. Um, it, it is fun to be able to explain to a, an Arminian how secure they are when they don't even know. <laughs> to be able to encourage them in their, in their eternal security. And, and, and it's, it's a, such a total relief. And, and the, the joy that they have when it finally that, it just washes over them like, wow, I can't lose this, is, I think, it's, it's, it comes close to that joy of being saved in the first place. It's just that, that relief and that thrill and that delight to say, man, I, I can never lose this. How, how glorious is this? All right. The new believer needs to know fully what is meant by it is finished. I think that tetelestai statement that Jesus made on the cross is so victorious and so glorious. It is finished is finished. All right, He doesn't need our help to maintain it or to keep it or to, to preserve it. He doesn't say it's mostly finished. He didn't offer a, a Ben Franklin statement like, uh, you know, a republic if you can keep it. Uh, he said, um, eternal life, tetelestai, it is finished. The Father is 100% satisfied. God the Father will never be dissatisfied with the work of Christ on the cross. The new believer needs to know fully the duration of eternal life. And in some ways, it's kind of a trick question. How long is eternal, right? And, and if you have eternal life, when does that expire? Okay, How long was the seven years war? How long was the 30 years war? How long was the 100 years war? I mean, you, you can ask these goofy questions, uh, but they, they answer themselves, right, in, in the, the way that you phrase the question. 
even if technically people will pick, pick nits and they'll dispute how long the 30 years war was but um or the 100 years war um i'm not interested in that i'm just i'm just illustrating the fact that eternal life how long is that and if you can lose it it's not eternal if it's eternal you can't lose it by definition and so uh, we were able to reinforce these things and it's pretty simple to be able to do that the new believer needs to know fully the security of his salvation that there is nothing he can do and indeed there's nothing that even god can do to reverse the justification he's been given you know you and i we could give a gift and then get mad and take it back or we, or we can uh, but god can't that's not his nature that's not who he is it is unchanged that's why we take the time to study immutability and veracity and truth and all these aspects of who god is and what god is because that's the god who saves us and the god that can revoke that or, or take it back or uh that, that's not the god we just got done studying over the last three weeks okay when you study his essence and his nature and so forth the god that, that you envision can can throw away your salvation is not the god the bible describes and by the way a god that's that fickle that's that uh traitorous that's that's so betraying and wicked and and that that's that's a god who could not provide the salvation in the first place that you and i receive by grace through faith in jesus christ that requires infinite holiness infinite righteousness infinite justice and uh we can appreciate that as well perhaps the best way to examine the work of god in achieving our salvation is to recognize the nature of the barrier between the holy god and fallen man i like the doctrine of the barrier that was one of pastor theme's books that i read earlier um, in my life maybe what i think divine guidance prayer and the barrier were the first three that i ever read um i do like uh, bill blankenship he's got a, a nice diagram that i reproduced in in the notebook i made a slight adjustment to it because according to and this is uh better i think if we look at it on a full screen instead of there we go anyway as far as the the uh, the penalty of sin expiation is the solution to the penalty of sin uh, sin itself you have redemption and atonement the character of god is satisfied under propitiation the character of man that is a fallen character is satisfied through justification and imputation spiritual death is taken care of through regeneration physical death is taken care of now this is where i made a few adjustments to blankenship's diagram so i prefer this diagram here positional truth and resurrection being the provision for physical death regeneration and eternal life the provision for spiritual death i think those were the two changes i made anyway if you want copies of this this is uh both of these charts are found in uh in that notebook When you study the barrier, when you study everything that God did, every stone that was removed, everything that separates fallen man from a holy God, you realize that each one of these things is an issue. But God makes provision for each and every one of these things. And to lose salvation means that God has to retroactively undo all of these things. He has to rebuild a barrier wall. He has to rebuild stone by stone everything that he tore down in Christ. And there's not a shred of, of Bible verse anywhere that hints that he does such a thing in, in any passage. Even the scary passages the Armenians point to for uh, the, the judgment passages that they point to in Hebrews or other places that they think prove that you can lose salvation. None of those passages make any clue of any kind of a hint that expiation is undone or, or we're unredeemed or uh, we're unatoned for or the Father is no longer satisfied in propitiation. None of these doctrines have any uh biblical basis to be removed to be undone to be retroactively canceled in uh, in any respect so um in examining everything god did to remove this barrier stone by stone it becomes evident that in order for a believer to lose their salvation each and every one of these works of god would have to be undone god would have to rebuild that dividing wall he would have to rebuild that that barrier between um god and uh fallen man and there's not a, a clue in scripture that such a thing ever happens uh, the evidence for each of these items is that they are once and for all irreversible events 
the overwhelming evidence for all of them then is combined that salvation is a once and for all irreversible event. It becomes overwhelming. If any one of them is, is irrevocable, then what about all six of them combined or all eight of them combined or what have you? See, it just uh, intensifies the reality. And, and what I like to do mo- most of all is just teach the Exodus, teach the Red Sea and, and, and ask the person, all right, when the, when the waters came crashing down and all of Pharaoh's army was killed and all of Israel was redeemed on the, on the other side, when, when was that ever undone? When did any Jewish person ever go back to Egypt? They did not. The point is, is that redemption is a one-way door. That once they're brought through the Red Sea, there is never a return to the, to the bondage in Egypt. There's never a return to the slave market of sin for the unbeliever that comes to eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, they can still die in the wilderness. They can still come under divine discipline. They can still fail to enter into milk and honey and, and, and rewards. But that's, that's a forsaking of rewards. That is not a loss of redemption. Every one of those in the Exodus generation that died in the wilderness... They died as a redeemed person in the wilderness. All right? We want to be clear on that. So the barrier, like every other basic study, we can examine it, we can re-examine it, we can come back on a more intermediate level, on a more advanced basis. Honestly, um, I, I struggle sometimes to describe the difference between expiation and redemption. And, and, in term, and here's, what I, here's what I'm talking about. The payment for the penalty of sin as opposed to the consequences of the sin. All right? And, and both were dealt with. Expiation is not a pure synonym for redemption. They're both realities. Colossians 2.14, 1 Corinthians 1. It's important to know, but sometimes it's awkward to put into words, and sometimes I struggle to, uh, to put these into terms. The, the difference between the, the, the consequences for the sin and the guilt for the sin, say, Different issues. The Bible describes them in different ways. Um, anyway, that's why I say we can go back again on an intermediate basis. We can go back on an advanced basis. We can plunge into some realms. Uh, it's beyond the scope of what we're here for tonight, though. All right. Uh, the main difference I had with Pastor Blankenship is that um, he preferred to make eternal life as a solution for physical death. And I don't. I make eternal life the provision for spiritual death, because I believe that it is. The provision for physical death is resurrection, is the resurrection body and the new life that we have there. But um, I make resurrection as a solution for physical death. Also, I've changed some of the scripture citations to what uh, Pastor Blankenship had on his table. All right, so we got the problem, we got the solution. Some of these deal with reconciliation. Some of them deal with salvation, different contexts there. The penalty of sin is spiritual death. Are we clear on that? Yes, sir. Okay. With respect to redemption, you just mentioned uh, associated with expiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, redemption is... Uh, translated into the English from, from more than one Greek word, mm-hmm. uh, apolutrosis, which means to loose mm-hmm. someone from something that binds him. I think that's the one in uh, Ephesians 1.7. And then exagorazo, which means to purchase. To purchase so out. Yeah. To purchase out of the marketplace or something like that. Uh-huh. So uh, maybe um, the exagorazo is associated with expiation whereas the is the is the apolutrosis associated with some other aspect there that may very well be the case as well yeah colossians 2 4 or 14 having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us this is what's this is what's in view and this is what's usually thought of in the in the when systematic theology breaks down the nature of expiation is the fact that this certificate of debt was leveled against us. These are the charges. These are the consequences. And so that gets nailed to the cross and uh, the application there. So that's, and that's not ex agarazzo. That's, uh, what is that? Ex 
Yeah, but you're right. Sometimes redemption comes from a multitude of, of Greek terms, and sometimes they're used interchangeably in ways that don't do us any favors that maybe we would do better if we were more consistent with how we, how we rendered those in English. And I would agree with that. Well, we had an example of that this morning too, did we not? With burden and with, with, uh, with load. Each one of us will bear our own load, uh, but we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. And the vocabulary there sometimes throws us because the same term, baros, can be translated as either burden or load. And then uh, we end up confusing things when we're trying to distinguish between a baros and a, and a fortion. So that becomes a, that becomes a challenge as well. All right, I think I'm going to stop there and uh, we'll spend more time next week on soteriology. I want to make sure that we get a good start on that and and we're very clear on what it means to be saved and who the Savior is and what what happens when we are saved and why it is that just receiving such a thing is impossible to be lost. So we'll, uh, we'll come back to this again next week. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for the blessings. And again, Father, we are so delighted that... Um, that I'm teaching this class instead of Pastor Dan. We're excited to, for the, uh, the candidating opportunity that Dan has. Uh, Dan and Stephanie have been fellowshipping with the saints in Corpus Christi, and we do pray for uh, that process. We don't know the timetable. We don't know the mechanism, but we do know that uh, tonight, today, and next Sunday are the, the final sessions of the candidating messages. So uh, whatever follows after that, it's in your hands, Father, and I thank you that uh, Dan is approaching that in all humility, and Corpus Christi, I believe, is approaching it in all humility. They're seeking your will, and as uh, they seek your will, um, it's going to be a glory, Father, whichever way it goes. So we thank you for that. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for these students here. We thank you for our upcoming baptism service at the end of the month. We're excited about uh, the folks that have just recently come to receive eternal life, and they want to publicly uh, testify to that before they're friends and family, and, and uh, looking forward, Father, to that public testimony as well. So in all these things, Father, we give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.